Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Apparently, according to um, an article I read this past week, it's been uh, the worst summer for women, or rather the article was headlined, Has This Been the Worst Summer for Women? It was written by a woman by the name of Sarah Churchwell from East Anglia University. And uh, she identified three areas where this past summer have been, they've kind of turned upside down some of the issues that uh, seem to have been, we've been progressing with. And she identified it through three high-profile cases. Profile case number one was Mel Gibson. It finally seems as though Mel Gibson has been He's lost, he's, he's fallen off the perch of Hollywood. He's lost his star-studded status uh, because of a word that he used. Apparently talking about his ex-girlfriend uh, and the way she was dressed for a particular high-profile function, he said that she looked as if she ought to be raped by a pack of, and then she used the N-word. Uh, then he used the N-word, a word which has absolutely, quite rightly, horrific, offensive, and he's been written off. He's lost, it would seem, all of the contacts in Hollywood that uh, were willing to support him down through the years. And, And she wasn't saying that what he said was wrong. She was rather highlighting that what hadn't made the headlines, what hadn't lost him his high profile place, in Hollywood was the previous events where he had punched this same girlfriend, broken two front teeth, and attacked her while she was carrying her baby. There's a bit of a problem there, isn't there? Isn't there a bit of a problem for us when we see one thing, a use of a word which is absolutely offensive and wrong, and yet somehow we brush under the carpet the fact that he had actually attacked her just a few months earlier. Case number two. You will have seen it probably in the papers, Roman Polanski. 
escapes extradition from Switzerland to the United States, where he was being, he's, he's facing still uh, charges for unlawful sex with a 13-year-old girl. And uh, it, he's escaped extradition. What's even more remarkable, according to Sarah Churchwell, is that he escaped that, but also gained a huge amount of support from some of the uh, Hollywood well-known notoriety, none less than a woman herself at the pinnacle of Hollywood, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg allegedly has said, I know it wasn't rape-rape. And after all, he's a remarkable talent. Problem number two for Sarah Churchwell. Another identifier for Sarah Churchwell why it's been a really bad summer for women. You know, we'll brush under the carpet horrendous things that he's done towards young girls uh, because he's uh, an incredibly talented director. There's a problem there, isn't there? Point number three, Raoul Moat. What a horrific... You just use the, use the name and you see it's just a horrific thing, isn't it? What emerged some days after uh, Raoul Moat was support pages on Facebook, which I'm sure you heard about. Uh, support pages, rest in peace, Raoul Moat, you legend, was the title of it. One of the comments that one of the posters had put on it was this. If my ex had behaved like that, I hope I have the guts to do a moti. Come on. Doesn't it raise in our minds there is something desperately wrong? Sarah Churchwell is one of the leading uh, academic feminists in the country. Uh, and she is, I guess, quite rightly raising that there are real issues. And just in case you think I'm going all highbrow by reading from um, an academic uh, like Sarah Churchwell from the University of East Anglia, let me tell you where I read it. Maybe I ought not to. It is an article that appeared in Glamour magazine, which is a w apparently... Uh, the, the women's UK number one magazine. I know that it is the UK number one magazine for women because it says it on the front. <laughs> what is going on? What she's saying is this. We need to look as ordinary people in society. This is not highbrow academia. This is reality. There is something badly, badly wrong. We have a problem, don't we, in seeing things go on and not being able to respond to them in an appropriate way. We see wrong, and there is a mixed response to it. We see things which are, which are let's use the word that is used in Jonah, which God uses. We see things which are wicked, and we don't know how to correctly respond to them, and we quite rightly see responses like that. And Sarah Churchwell is absolutely right where she sees that and she says, We've got to say that kind of response 
is wrong. There is such a thing as wickedness. There is such a thing as wrong. There is such a thing that we cannot say is okay to just wipe away. There was a case, uh, brilliant, um, what's the name of the guy? UK, Law and Order, uh, Bradley Walsh plays a brilliant part in that. Law and Order UK, new series just on. Really hard hitting the first one. It was a case of a child murder. And um, the, the, the victim's mother was responding to the way the case was unfolding. And she came to this point where she sees, as a mother, this young child who was the, the murderer in the dock. And as a mother, she's wanting to reach out and say, to send this child to prison for the next 20 years isn't right. It looks like we've got this complex, messed up, mixed up inability to respond to real wickedness. Uh, Now, the reason that I raise all of that, the reason that we open with that is because I think this particular passage uh, raises just those kind of questions for us. And as people who are who believe the Bible as Christians, we appear to have a real problem with the way that God behaves here. Uh, And the reason is, contained right at the very beginning of the book of Jonah, we feel comfortable with the kind of Sarah Churchwell perspective because the Lord comes to Jonah and speaks to him and he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And we feel, okay, there's the, frame, there's the environment in which we are in. We have a wickedness which needs to be dealt with. Now we come to chapter 3 and if we have a look at the last verse of chapter 3, verse 10, we see a response from God which gives us, on the face of it, a huge problem. Because it looks, doesn't it, as if God is responding to this and saying, all that has gone on in that city, it doesn't matter. I forgive you. Doesn't it? And t- uh, just so that we don't uh, fall into the trap uh, of, of viewing this as some sort of, um, you know, an ancient story that loses its impact, let's remind ourselves of the kind of world that Jonah was living in. It was living, he was living in a world where the kings, the princes, the, the hierarchy, the nobles, whatever word you want to use, were the ultimate authority. There was those who had and those who didn't have, the noble class and the peasant class. And right across the, the, the world as known at that time, the noble class were oppressing the peasant class. That was the kind of wickedness that was going on, alongside lots of other wickedness, I'm sure. But we would have, in Nineveh, a situation where the ruling elite could run roughshod over the peasant classes, just run roughshod over them. Their possessions could be taken, their families could be taken, there would be no consequence. Uh, and, And then God 
calls them to account. And he says, that is wicked. I am going to overthrow this city in 40 days through the words of of Jonah. And they fall apart. They confess. They throw themselves on God's mercy. And he forgives them. And all of us, if, if we think about that in the context of the three cases that Sarah Churchwell has raised, we, we, ask, we must ask the question, where is justice? Where is justice in this story? How does that work out? How is God? Because after all, haven't we been declaring right the way through, and we're continuously declaring, that God is just? He's not a God who... Um, can just deal with things and change all of the time and, and disregard things. He's just. That's one of the great things about God. He is consistent. There are things that he says are wrong and they stay wrong. And the fact that things have been done wrong means that they have to be dealt with. And yet it seems here, as the, the people say sorry, and that's it. I want to ask the question, not just about the people, take it to a deeper level so that we come to terms with this story in the light of the whole Bible. Just ask a simple question is this, how can God do that? How can God do that? How can he be a God who is on the one hand just and on the other hand can seemingly just let go? Just forgive them. I think we need to take a a little wander around different parts of the Bible, which I'll I'll share with you as we see um, how this works and how God explains this to us through the rest of his word. The first thing I want to say is this. We need to understand that in this wickedness, in fact, in every wickedness, is God separate from it? Or is God exposed to it? There's a time in the life of David. He's a king in Israel. He is is representative of God in Israel. In a real sense, he's the king. He's faithful to God. And and he uh, is built this nation Israel under the hand of God to great success. And um, he's, he's... one day he's out on his balcony and he looks out over uh, the, the back gardens, I guess, of the, uh, of the buildings that were near to his uh, palace and he sees a beautiful young woman and he decides that he wants that woman. And so he brings Bathsheba to his home and they have sex together. He takes her. Now, he finds out that she's pregnant. Crisis, disaster. How am I going to get away with this? I know what I'll do is I'll bring her husband back home from the battlefield and I'll put her in a position where he's back home and they can spend a night together and he can now be uh, considered the father and everything will be fine. Her husband's an, an honorable man. Uh, And he sees a degree of unfairness. Why should I be given 
liberty to come back. When my comrades are out on the battlefield, I won't go back home. I'll sleep out. I'll show a solidarity with the troops by not going back to my wife. And, and whatever your thoughts on, uh, on his decision there, um, David's plan is just blown apart, isn't it? So what he does is to resolve the problem. He arranges for Bathsheba's husband to be placed at the very front of the battle. And he gets killed. Problem solved. Until the prophet comes and faces him out with it. And he describes just a little lamb that is stolen by a rich person. And David says, that's just horrendous. Who is that? I'll deal with it. And the prophet says, it's you. It's you, because you've stolen Bathsheba. And David just, he falls apart. It, it, maybe you've never reached this. But I don't think you can really know God deeply until you've reached the point of falling apart before God because of who you are and because of who I am. He realizes deep down who I am and he falls apart. I mean, his spiritually, there is nothing left in him of any pride. There is nothing left of any arrogance. This king who can do whatever he wants. You know, that's not that different to what would have been going on in Nineveh. Why God says it's wicked and why God says he's going to overthrow this city. And then in Psalm 51, David comes before God and he confesses. And he says this. Now listen to what David says because it opens a window of understanding which we need to get a grip of. He says this. Against you and you only... Have I sinned? And, and I guess for all of us we think, oh, no, David, that's not right, is it? That's not right because you've sinned against Bathsheba. You've sinned against her husband. You've sinned against the whole of the nation that is looking up to you. And then you stand there and you say, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. How can you say that? There's loads of other people who you've affected by this. Until we understand that in God's perspective, from God's point of view, there is, there is a connectedness that he makes with people who are made in his image. That's us. So that those who are the victims of outrageous sin God associates with because they're made in his image. It's as though if, if David, in fact, we read this in Genesis where God says anybody who takes a life of another human being offends me because they are made in my image. You do something to one person, you offend something, you offend somebody, you, you you just sin against them. It is a much bigger thing than we ever realize. <laughs> because we're doing it against God. Because every human being is made in the image of God. 
And God cares about human beings because he's made them like that. And he sits alongside and he says, you, you tarnish human beings who are made in my image. It's as though you affect me. And David got that. David understood that so that he could say, because you have said this is wrong, because you have said I should not treat other people in this way, because, I, uh, because you have determined that you love humanity and every law is good for human beings. And when I step outside of that, I understand now. I offend you so it's so big I can say against you. And you only have I sinned. Uh, and then we realize how big it is to stand against God. And maybe in that we get another little insight that we see every little part of what we do, therefore, every little step out of line, every, every way in which we step against God's way and God's perfect way is a contributing offense to God. We are both perpetrators and victims in sin. We try to describe that. It's been a fascinating week in the newspaper around George Michael. <laughs> Some people are just feeling sorry for him because he's this great hero musical guru who's now banged up in this cell and he's, he was there kind of cowering in a corner with tears streaming and all of the other things while the, in, the other inmates made up uh, songs to his tunes which were um, just, you know, really quite witty in lots of ways and then other people feel sorry for him. Somebody said, uh, it's, it is hard not to feel sorry for George Michael, isn't it? It's written in a paper. Yes, his tendency to drive while under the influence of cannabis is potentially dangerous. But Michael isn't willfully malicious. It's hard to feel sorry for him. Guess the newspaper? <laughs> the Guardian. <laughs> it's easy to say that, isn't it, from kind of leafy London suburbs, that he's not really willfully malicious. But then it's even more poignant when you try to say, well, he hasn't really done that much wrong to somebody whose child is sucked into the drug culture and is wrecking their life because what they've done is they've lived their life emulating somebody of profile. And then we start to realize we are not independent in the lives that we live. What we do, the lives that we live, the individual things that we do, all go to contribute little by little, piece by piece, to the whole problem of the world that we live in. So much so that, that Nehemiah says this. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. I confess those sins. It's as though, yeah, I realize that, that I contribute a little bit to all of this. I know that I haven't driven my Range Rover into a wall. I know that I haven't, if you like, 
been accused of having sex with a 13-year-old girl and am escaping extradition. But I do know that my attitudes and my thoughts and my behaviours all go towards building the wall in this world, all go towards contributing so that I might not be there, but I'm adding to it in some way because in some way I'm condoning something. I'm living a life which contributes to that. I am part of this whole process where we live lives which eventually we end up with these things going on. I am both a victim and I am a perpetrator of sin. I am both of those things. I stand guilty and I stand as one who is offended by, against, by others. I am both of those. And so I stand before God saying, I, I need your help. But I also need, if I'm honest, to be judged by you. I stand as both of those things. I stand as both. And then we say, well, how can God hold those two things together? The only way that we can reconcile that, the only way that we can hold those two things together is by understanding how God orientates himself to this world. He points us all the time, all the time, to Jesus. And in a sense, we cannot come to terms with the last verse of Jonah chapter 3 until we look to Jesus. Does that sound strange? How can God forgive the offensiveness of the wickedness of the Ninevites and allow it to go unpunished? The reality is he doesn't. He doesn't allow it to go unpunished. It isn't unpunished. It's carried for those of Nineveh who come before him and say, we throw ourselves on your mercy, will you forgive us? He says, yes, I will forgive you. But it won't go unpunished. I will take that offense and I will carry it in time and yet eternally to my son, Jesus. And I will place on him your wickedness and he will bear it. He will bear that wickedness so that it doesn't go unpunished. Why can God not allow it to go unpunished? Because he is a just God. Because he can never allow wickedness to go unchallenged, just sweep it under the carpet. Because he can never allow, in his perspective, from his way of dealing with things, he can never allow the kind of Roman Polanski, Mel Gibson inconsistency he says, no, I can do both consistently. I can take that sin. I can carry it forward. I can place it on my son. And in placing it on my son, it gets punished. 
which allows me at this point in time to respond to your plea for mercy and for me to be consistent and say, I forgive you. Isn't that a remarkable thought? That places at the very center of the Bible, even hundreds of years before, Jesus. Jonah chapter 3 cannot make sense without Jesus. In fact, that was Jonah's problem. He looked at it and he thought, you're going to forgive them. And that's not fair. It's not right. And yet he can. Because he can consistently carry it forward and place on his son that offense, that wickedness, it gets dealt with and he can forgive. Now, just ask one question, therefore. There are two outcomes to that. Those of us who know Jesus and for those of us who do not know him and do not know what it is to be forgiven. When David gets torn apart because he realizes who he is before God and he's, he's against you and you only have I sinned, is there any forgiveness? How can I resolve the problem, that the offense that I have caused to Bathsheba? How can I resolve the offense that I have caused by arranging her husband to be killed? David, you can't pay it back. There's only actually the victim who can pay it back. There's only the victim who can truly forgive. And you think, well, Bathsheba's husband isn't there to forgive. But if God is, if you like, the ultimate victim, God can forgive because he bears it in Jesus. He carries it. And I would say when you reach a point, I pray that every one of us in this room will reach a point of being just ripped to bits when we realize who we are. (laughs) And then we say, yeah, but If God could do it for a bunch of Ninevites, a city of Ninevites, hundreds of years before Jesus, then he can do the same for us today, hundreds of years after Jesus, so that we can say, we can take that wickedness, we can take that guilt, that responsibility, and it can be timelessly placed backwards if that makes sense, timelessly backwards. It does from our perspective because it goes backwards in our time and yet it's timeless for God. It gets placed on Jesus and it gets paid for. That's what makes sense of forgiveness now in the same way as it makes sense of forgiveness back in Nineveh's day. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only way that this God of the Bible can remain consistent. It's the only way that you and I can come to him and say, will you forgive me? And not feel as if he's sweeping our guilt under the carpet as though it didn't matter to all of the people that we have offended. It is the only way. And yet, isn't it remarkable that it is the way that he's designed? Who could have thought of that? except God himself. 
So that's how we need to respond when we feel stripped to nothing. We can go to God and say, you'll forgive me and you'll be consistent. What about ongoing? What about when we've reached that point? What about all those times when we continue to be offended? When we continue to be abused? When we continue to be sinned against? We've been forgiven, but what about when it happens to us? When we are the victims as we move forward? Well, the Bible addresses that as well. Paul says to the Romans, he says this, Do not take revenge, my friends. Do not take revenge. Don't get involved in that process of of trying to get payback. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, he says. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes that's really hard for us to do. Because we want to be paid back. We want to feel as though somehow it's been resolved. But if we're able to step back and say, God will resolve it. He will resolve it in one of two ways. He will either take that offense and he will place it backwards on his son in the same way as he's done for me. So that that person will be forgiven in the same way as I've been forgiven. Or he will resolve it by judgment against the person. That is exactly what happened to the Ninevites. They appealed to God for mercy. He took their guilt. He placed it on his son. They didn't understand it. All they knew was that God was compassionate and he forgave them. He placed it on their son. They were forgiven. And we're going to see some Ninevites in heaven. (laughs) Amazing. We're going to see some Ninevites who got forgiven by Jonah's message and by the compassion of God. We're going to see some of them. And he can do the same today. In fact, he must do the same today for him to be a consistent, faithful, compassionate God who is consistent with his justice and his law. I love that we have a God who is consistent. A God who is not consistent is not worthy of our worship. And yet we see, when we see how consistent God is, we realize he is more than worthy of our worship.